Join me in prayer. Lord, you have caused all of the scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read them, mark them, learn from them, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, my prayer this morning for this people, for me, as I leave this place today, after being confronted by the words of Jesus, is that I would treasure Christ above all else. Grant it, Lord. In Jesus' name, and the church said amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter number 6. If you need a Bible, we have one right there in front of you in the pew. If you want to use a device, feel free to do that. In fact, if you're using the Bible app, and you'll go to the events tab on that, you should find a link to today's notes. Church family, Grace Covenant members, the shortcut to that is to download the Grace Covenant Church app because that's where it takes everybody anyway. So the notes are right there and they're easy to find. This morning, we pick back up in this series of this counter-cultural living that the Lord has called his disciples to exemplify here in this world that is running headlong and as fast as it can toward death and darkness and destruction. Now, there's much beauty for us to celebrate, but let's be honest. The systems of the age are not pulling us toward Christ. They're pushing us away from Christ. And it was the same then. Jesus is marking his disciples as living differently, distinctly from the world around them. The last time we read the Sermon on the Mount was right before Thanksgiving, so it's been a minute. I'm not going to go back and rehearse all of that. But here we come on the other side of the disciples' prayer, model prayer, also referred to as the Lord's Prayer. We come now to this text, and it's about money. So go ahead and say it when you leave, especially if it's your first time here. All the pastor talked about our first time there was money. Well, actually, Jesus did. I'm just going to read the text. But really, the message here has little to do with money and everything to do with treasuring Christ above all of the distractions of this world. If I ask you what you were living for, now you're in church, so you know the right answer, but if I caught you on a Monday through Saturday and caught you off guard and didn't have my, this is as close to I come as priestly vestments, okay? If I caught you in my clothes and I was chopping up some wood in the yard, yes, I've done that before. Um, I know, it just, it, my physique betrays that, but I have. I know they act as tall as I am. It makes for an interesting sight. If I asked you, what are you living for? If I asked you, what's the most important relationship in your life? What's your first and quickest knee-jerk answer? If I asked you, what drives you? What's the fuel in your tank? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What steers your life? How would you steer the conversation? Now, every good church kid knows, and all of our children's church kids, by the way, we offer that on the even weeks of the month, month, uh, weeks two and four, led by Pastor D. 
That's, so next week, ages four to seven kids, that's for you. But all those kids, I believe you've trained them, Pastor D. The correct answer, when you don't know, just say Jesus, right? And so we all just say Jesus. That's right. Jesus, Pastor. And uh, so th there's truth in that. But here's the reality. Do our actions and do our lives proclaim to the world that we treasure Christ above all else? Christ above our treasures. Christ above our other relationships. Christ above above our own agendas and our own selfish desires. In our text this morning, Jesus lowers the boom pretty heavily and very directly. He wants to show us this morning, watch this, the way to true wealth, the way to true wisdom, and the way of true worship. If you're taking notes this morning, out beside that first couple of verses, verses 19 through 21, I would write that header, true wealth or heavenly treasures. That's where it is. You remember the text. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves Break in and steal. Okay, Q&A time. Now, the last time we had Q&A time where I asked for a response, actually, pastor or brother, not pastor, Gary Cobb was here. He asked, what do people collect? I'm not going to say any names, but uh, he's texted me and mentioned it twice, Caroline, that you said skulls, but I'm not going to say any name. I assured him they were not people skulls. He was relieved. Okay, so here's my question for you. What do moths destroy? What are things that moths get into? clothes, right? I've got a sweater. That they, it's one sweater. It's my favorite sweater. I don't know that I necessarily look good in the sweater. It's just my favorite sweater. And they keep finding it. It's the only one they find in my closet. We've never seen a moth in my closet. They find this sweater. It's where they live. I don't know. Anyway, can't stand them. Okay, moths in sweaters. Uh, anybody else know what moths get into? Have you ever dealt with this? They'll get near the lights, yes. They'll, they'll make it. What's that? Yes, paper. They get into, come on, food. Who said food? Food. They get into food. You ever had a moth in your pantry? Takes you 20 years and an exorcist to get them out. It's the worst. Moths. So is Jesus here saying we can't have food? Or clothes? Please. Uh, what does rust destroy? What are some things that rust that you have in your home that even now that rust would destroy? What's that? Pipes. Pipes, pipes are important in civilized society. <laughs> we like for our pipes to work here at Grace Covenant, right? Pipes, hammers, tools, tools that you need. All these things rust can destroy. Moth, rust. And then, of course, we know that thieves, if they break in, they can take anything they can carry out of the house. So that tends to be smaller, more precious things that they take out. So is Jesus here teaching that we can't have food, clothing, tools that we need to do life or things that we would have of value in our homes? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth. That phrase, do not lay up, that word is actually, watch this, it's clever. The way this is written, the way the Holy Spirit had this written down. Don't treasure treasures. I'll unpack that as we move along. But let's talk about what he's not dealing with. What's Jesus not including here if we look at the balance of Scripture and even his other teaching? 
What is it not including here? What's not banned right here? He's not banning possessions. In fact, Scripture nowhere forbids possessing private property. We're commanded to steward the things that come our way well and for the glory of God. He's not banning possessions here. He's not banning saving for a rainy day. In fact, Scripture, uh, everybody in here that's uh, gotten a Christian investment or financial advisor, you've got that illustration from Proverbs of the ant memorized because every financial advisor tells you that. You know, the Bible says, you know, they consider the ant, right? I haven't found ant investments yet, but anyway, consider the ant who stores in the summer for the food it will need for winter. And the Bible also says that a believer who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. The, the text says infidel. So it's not just an unbeliever, but one who is violently rejecting the truth. He's not banning enjoyment of good things. In fact, we're not to despise, but rather enjoy the good things which our Creator has given us richly to enjoy. A wise preacher once said, it's okay to have stuff as long as stuff doesn't have you. So neither having possessions or making provision for the future or enjoying the gifts of a good creator are included in the ban on earthly treasures here. The Bible teaches us in 1 Timothy chapter number 6, two passages from there. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Later on in verse 17, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Set your hope on God, who richly provides, watch this, us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So he's not banning some of these foundational things. Now that's where most Christians stop with the application here. We're like, oh good, I can have stuff. That's good, because I got a lot of stuff. <laughs> Jesus said and the preacher said, can we leave now, pastor, let's close the service. No, because I want to tell you what he is pushing back on quite directly. Jesus clearly forbids selfishness. Old Testament, New Testament, all throughout. The selfish accumulation of goods, hoarding. And I'm not talking about being on a show on TV. But the hoarding, this insatiable desire to get stuff. Jesus here is calling out, and it's done throughout all the New Testament, extravagant and luxurious living at the expense of the needy. Ouch. I hope he moves quickly through this part. Have you noticed he slowed down the way he's talking? I don't think so. Jesus forbids hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness uh, that doesn't feel the needs of our fellow image bearers who are poor and underprivileged. You see, these self-made men and self-made women that we're surrounded with, have painted themselves into a corner. They become islands. Jesus forbids the foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance of possessions. When Hurricane Katrina swept through 
Louisiana and the Gulf states and devastated so much of what was there. Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association Rapid Response Team had deployed, had people on the ground to give hope and, and to help in Jesus' name. And I remember these, these interviews. This one woman is crying incessantly and she's saying, our whole life, our whole life, everything, our whole life is gone. Thank you for being here. Well, they were there to help her, but also to point her to something greater than just the abundance of things. And then they panned into this cul-de-sac neighborhood, I'll never forget it, and scrawled out on a piece of wall that was taken out of the house, sheetrock. They had scrawled with one of those thick, thick Sharpies, praise the Lord, our life does not consist of the abundance of things. Don't define your life by what you have or don't have. Lastly, Jesus forbids materialism that would tether our heart to this earth and have us, I can see Corey Ten Boom giving that illustration, hanging on too tightly with closed fists to the good things that God would try to shepherd our way. James 5, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosions will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, you've kept back by fraud. It's crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. There's a lot in the Bible about money, and it's not all great for those that are addicted to it. It's clear that the Bible encourages us to steward well and make sensible provisions for the future. It's equally clear that covetousness, miserly living, and selfishness should not be named among the body of Christ. Jesus gives us some great examples all throughout the New Testament. They're there. If you've got your Bibles, I don't have scripture on the screen for this on purpose. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Let's just look at one example rather quickly, which I think fits the American dream pretty well. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Luke 12. And some of you that are, grew up in church almost jumped up because you had it in sword drill, but that's not, we're not doing that. Luke 12, verses 16 through 21. Four of you laugh at that. You know what that is. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Then I'll say to my soul, soul, you've ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I mean, that's the American dream, isn't it? You get more stuff, you accomplish more things, so you, you get a bigger house, you get 
bigger cars, nicer things. Anytime you get a promotion, you spend to match the money that comes in. Or, 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 you can live below your means and be generous. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, wherever the gospel is taught and people seek to live according to it, there are two terrible plagues that always arise. False preachers who corrupt the teaching and then Sir Greed who obstructs right living. So there's the treasures on earth, what he's not forbidding, what he is forbidding. Let's look, though, at what he uh, is commending us to do. What are the heavenly treasures that God is calling us to? How can we get those heavenly treasures? Just before that, let me just remind you that the pursuit of money will never satisfy you. What are the earthly treasures you are regularly seeking? Before we get to the heavenly treasures. You say, well, I don't really have a problem with money. Well, you may remember back in early of Matthew 6, Jesus talked about some folks that gave to the needy and they did it so that everybody would see and they did it in such a way that everybody would see them and applaud their efforts. And then he said, you have your reward. You've got it because you treasured the applause of others more than you treasured me. We need to pray about ways to keep ourselves from seeking earthly treasures. You can be rich in earthly treasures, but incredibly poor at the same time. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. It's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. You get more, so you get more. <laughs> but this is not the way. Heavenly treasures. If you went back through the Sermon on the Mount, you'd find the ways that Jesus describes to lay up treasures in heaven. Now, these aren't flashy, and these don't even make a really awesome sermon graphic. I hunted for some cool graphic for these. It don't exist, okay? Here's what they are. You ready? Get your, ah, ready for this. Happy moment. Here we go. Suffering persecution for the sake of Jesus. That'll give you treasures that won't fade. Loving one's enemies. Generous gifts to the poor without all the fanfare. Fervent and sincere prayer. Gary Cobb talked about that, didn't he? With those bowls of prayer around the throne of glory. Wow. Humble fasting, right? So you fast in a way that's humble. How do you fast in a way that's humble? You don't broadcast it, right? You don't announce on your social media feed, hey, off the grid today, fasting because I'm spiritual. Be back when I'm done. You don't get a shirt that says, I'm fasting. You slow. No, I'm done. <laughs> These are the things that lay up treasures in heaven. Jesus clearly teaches us that these things are worth treasuring. These are the things of real and lasting value. So we've got to ask ourselves where our treasure is located. Is it safely secure in heaven or is it unsecure here on this earth where it will never last? What's the big deal? Verse 21 is the big deal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Proverbs says it this way. Keep your heart with all vigilance. 
for from it flow the springs of life. Money talks, doesn't it? Unfortunately, you know what it says consistently? See you later. Bye-bye. What we value tugs at our minds and emotions. It consumes our time with planning and daydreaming and efforts to achieve. Stop, Jesus says, stop treasuring treasure. He's talked about wealth and now we move to wisdom. It's an interesting poetic way that he addresses it here, but we're gonna see true wisdom as we pursue light over darkness right here in the text. In the next two verses, verses 22 and 23, look at this beautiful allegory he gives as he gives light to it, pun intended. The eye is the lamp of the whole body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, How great is the darkness? Now, you can overthink this thing. You can really get deep, and he's like, I need all the original words and languages here. I want to sit like this for a couple of hours and pontificate on this. And and there's some wealth in doing that sometimes with Scripture. But let's not overcomplicate this. All of Scripture really deals with light and darkness in this way. You ready? Light, good, Darkness, I knew it. Y'all have sat and you've held your glasses in your mouths already this week and you've come to the conclusion of philosophers who've spent their lives studying the text. Light, say it with me, good, dark. So just as responsible Christians should be uneasy with the temptations that affluence brings, Responsible Christians should be people of light and life and not darkness and death. He's focused on the heart and now Jesus is focusing on the eye. We should pursue light rather than good. Old Testament, what's the big deal? Here's where darkness is described, Psalm 82.5. Here's a people that have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Psalm 18, 28. The psalmist writes to the Lord, offering an offering of praise, saying, Lord, it's you who put the light in my lamp. You have lightened my darkness. 1 Peter 2, 9, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's called us out of, say it, darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light out of bad and into so why why would the Christian the Jesus follower the disciple be consumed with taking in things of darkness well according to Jesus they're not In John chapter number three, he illustrates it beautifully. He says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen, there's the eye again, that his works have been carried out in God. 
This picture of the eyes, the gateway, or the light of the body is a serious matter. It's so serious, we indoctrinate, that's a word you don't hear often, our children in this. Oh, be careful, little eye, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eye, what you see. It matters. Brother, adult, man, friend, guest, be careful what you spend your time looking at. It matters. It affects you. What's your stream of content? What are you binging on in your mind's eye? If your eye is fixed and focused and consumed on anything other than God and His Word, you are dialing down the light. Think of lights on dimmers. When we actively take in hours and hours and hours of darkness, it dims the light. What we take in will either direct us or misdirect us. It'll affect our perspective on life. This is how important that lamp is. Our perspective on life. It will affect our priorities. And we will have directed or misdirected value systems based on what we take in. What do you truly value? All of these things are affected by that. Now, here's the thing. You can have perspectives on life and priorities and truly valuable that are completely consistent with a materialistic society. You drop a couple Christian verses in there, go grab you a couple signs at Hobby Lobby and you are set to jet and everybody's your best friend and will light you up on social media because it's all good. Look, this is a great person. Oh, they say such nice things and you can miss it. You can miss it. People around you may feel good about the things that you're saying. You may win affirmation. You, get, you may get likes. You may get attaboys, girls from your friends and echo chambers that you've built. But you will not stand before your friends at the judgment and give an account. You will stand before a holy God. And you will give an account for the deeds that you have done. Sin's forgiven. But an account will be made. Your influence or status will be examined for one thing and one thing only. Did you, primary assignment, make disciples for me? D.A. Carson writes, The good eye is the one that's fixed on God, unwavering in its gaze, constant in its fixation. Here's what this kind of gaze results in. It results in understanding of truth. God will speak to you from his word if you will fix your eyes on him. It also results in unabashedly, Carson's word, I love that, unabashedly pure behavior. Now we're not just into behavior modification, but the way you behave consistently shows us what you believe. You can go to college, you can have a 4.0 average, you can make the dean's list, you can graduate with honors, and you can be that rare unicorn that lands that high-paying job the second you walk out of the college graduation ceremony. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, you have flunked in life. Parents, yes, push your kids toward excellence. 
Yes, push them. Push them in ways, though, that matter most. Push them when you say, follow me as I follow Jesus. I'm going to be honest with you. Your kid can grow up ugly and broke. And as long as they know Jesus, you ought to be shouting in church and thanking God. No, 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 but they've got to achieve. They've got to go farther. And I've got them on a pathway of all this thing. Great, great. Is it God's pathway? Let's push them. Let's push them, though, toward true wealth, not earthly wealth that fades. Let's push them toward true wisdom, and let's push them toward, here's the last point this morning, true worship. It's interesting to me that in this text, Jesus doesn't say, you, you, you cannot serve God and Satan, or you cannot serve God in the world, or you cannot serve God and self. The dichotomy here intrigues me. You cannot serve God and money or mammon. Look at the verse, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Remember, Jesus called us, has called us, and equipped us, and loved us, and set a path for us, and given us instructions to live differently, to counter the culture around us. We counter popular culture as we live for him. In verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, he's calling us to live differently than the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. In the rest of the chapter, he's calling us to live differently than the materialism of the irreligious. Jesus is describing some of the marks of his disciples. He's, he's dealt with the heart, the eye, and now he's dealing with the will of man. His disciples have hearts that are set on heaven, not on the earth, and gaining true wealth. His disciples have eyes that are spiritual in their vision, singular, not divided. They're looking to gain true wisdom from God, not earthly wisdom that fades. His disciples serve the right master, and everybody that looks on and audits them behind them can see it not that we're perfect we all stumble bumble and fumble but we are on the pathway walking toward and with the king of glory Jesus isn't asking to be a part of your life nowhere in scripture did he ask to be a part of your life he's not even asking watch this evangelical American church not you but others right he's not even asking to be prominent in your life. Jesus demands, demands to be preeminent in your life. Why? Because he's Lord. He's Lord. You cannot serve to masters, that master word there is kurios. It's the same word used in Philippians where he's exalted as Lord. He's Lord, that means he has no rival. He's Lord, that means you, you get no right of refusal. He's Lord, that means there's no rebuttal. All blessing, all honor, all glory, all power is his. All strength and all wisdom is his. It belongs to him alone. He is the Lamb, the King, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It's his. He's Lord. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's ruler of all that is seen and those worlds yet undiscovered. He is the sinner's savior. He's the giver of blessings. He's the source of all power. And I've got news for you. Money can't buy him. 
He's Lord. He's Lord. He's risen from the dead and he's Lord. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, kurios, master, to the glory of God the Father. He's Lord. He alone is worthy of our worship and adoration. He alone is able to fulfill us. He alone is able to meet our needs according to his riches in glory. He alone has the final say. Why would you settle for money when you've got Jesus? 1 Timothy 6, the rest of that passage in verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wait a minute, Pastor. I know part of that verse. I love that verse in Hebrews. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Did you know that the punch, the first part of the verse, is a command to keep your lives free from the love of money? And Jesus is connecting the two. You see, self-made men and women who are in love with money and who are serving money as their master don't need Jesus. They've got it all figured out. Or so they think. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And because he said that, we can say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Money always leaves us. Jesus never leaves us. You might say this morning, I'm my own person. Nobody's my master. I make my own decisions. Well, that's not entirely the case. Even Bob Dylan knew that. You've got to serve somebody. The Bible actually says in Romans 6, 16, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. When it comes to money and treasures, you're either mastered by God or you're mastered by money. When you treasure money, You'll be mastered by money. You'll either ignore God or you'll treat him like a cosmic bellhop to get you more stuff. That's the lie of the prosperity theology. When you love God above money, when you treasure God, you'll be mastered by God and you will make money a servant of the kingdom of God and his priorities. Daniel Berman said it much more plainly. In fact, sums the whole sermon up better than I can. The Christian lives in this world, but his sights are set on the world above. As Julia comes this morning and prepares for our time of response, I wanna just address many of you right now that are sitting in this room, this lovely building this morning. I wanna address those of you watching on a screen right now and you are struggling with treasuring treasure. Except for your attendance to a weekly event with professing Christians, there is little evidence 
that you treasure God. There's little evidence that you have an eye for him based on what you consume. There's little evidence that you have an eye for his word. There's little evidence that you are mastered by him because he's not influencing your decisions really in many ways. If that's you this morning, I've got news for you. It doesn't matter what your net worth is. It doesn't matter what your academic or professional achievements or accolades are. It doesn't matter uh, whether you have uh, loudly sung in a church service on a Sunday or listened to Caleb or the station all week long. You lack true wealth. You lack true wisdom. And you lack true worship if you are seeking fulfillment outside of Christ. The beauty of the gospel is Jesus is calling us to himself. He's calling you this morning to be forgiven. He paid for your sin on the cross. He paid for my sin on the cross. His blood cleanses us of all unrighteousness. He's calling each of us this morning to the truth, to treasure him because he'll never fade. He'll never fail. And he will always satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. That verse from Proverbs, I'm going to put it on the screen so that it's up there while Julia plays. Proverbs 4, 23. There are some of you, in light of the text this morning, if you're honest with yourself, as the Holy Spirit is moving on your heart and also auditing your treasures, some of you may need to adjust. This is painful to say. Big deal your standard of living so that you can walk in obedience to this text. Some of you need to adjust your practice of giving so that you can walk in obedience to God's word. All of us need to be on guard against treasuring treasure. Take a moment and pray. See what the Holy Spirit lead you toward in treasuring Christ. anything this world can offer. Father, you are the all in all. You're everything that's sacred and blessed. Lord, you are our everything. And if not, Lord, I pray that even today we would step toward you. For some, that means stepping toward that relationship for the first time. Confessing our sins and their many. Putting our faith and trust in a resurrected Jesus who paid our sin debt on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for that. And it's to that sacrifice that we come now to remember at the communion table, Lord. You are the altar. You are the sacrificer and the sacrifice. Lord, when we remember that you are that one all-sufficient sacrifice, we do it with a feast this morning. 
We pray that you would unearth that deeper spiritual meaning that is needed for all of us. This is your table. We are your people. These are your elements this morning. Would you come and join us in that special way with a nearness that you promised when we gather in your name? Lord, we pray that through this banquet, your church, this house of prayer, would bless you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen.